Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Session one, the topic is, the Word of God is the nature of God. Could we say that together? The Word of God is the nature of God. Now, if you want to know who God is and what is He like, you can never ever discover God apart from engaging His Word. The discovery of God is impossible without the Word of God. You will never ever know God in any depth without engaging Him through His, through His Word. Now, as we start, I'm going to paint, go almost painstakingly slow to the point of boredom for some of us who know certain things. I want to ask you, please be patient. Uh, I wanted all the youth here, and I'm glad that you're all here. Youth, it's Friday night. (laughs) Okay, word night, amen. Um, Because we want to just ensure that, especially those that are less mature among us, fully understand some things that those of us who are more mature in God will take for granted. Okay, so please forgive me because I'm not going to assume nothing. Okay, I'm going to assume total ignorance. Okay, so be virgin in your mind, right? So that the seed of God's word can impregnate your spirit, sometimes with new understanding, because sometimes when you approach truth flooded with a perception of that concept, it prevents the invasion of the word either to correct it, to redefine it, retweak it, re, um, reset it, to give you a new perspective. The greatest sometimes barrier to new learning is prior learning. What you know can be the greatest prevention factor from accessing things you should know. Right? And so please, we're going to go slowly. Now, there are, I, I want to just discuss briefly Three words, Debar, Logos, and Rhema. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written largely in Greek. Certain portions are recorded in Aramaic. In fact, the Aramaic portions are far and few between. Those Aramaic portions largely were short sayings either by a person, largely in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and and John. Jesus used some Aramaic responses when he responded to certain questions. Okay? But by and large, Old Testament, Hebrew. New Testament, Greek. Everyone say word. Now, if you're reading in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, we have English Bibles, but in the original Hebrew language in which the Old Testament was written, the Hebrew equivalent for the word word is dabar. Everyone say dabar. Right? I say it like it's dabar. Dabar. It's a very powerful word. The Hebrew language is a picturesque language, full of, of, of meaning. 
pregnant with meaning, full of insinuations, innuendos. Um, and so when, when I say to you, the Dabar of God, the Word of God, it means something very, very specific. That sometimes the English word Dabar does not, English word word does not communicate. So Dabar means this, listen carefully. Um, it means speech or matter. Speech or matter. The word Dabar implies words spoken. Where the fulfillment of what is spoken is pregnant within the word spoken. That is very important for you to understand. Sometimes this word is translated works, like in Psalm 45. Works. It is as though in the moment of the speaking, there is a reckoning that the deed attendant with that word is already fulfilled or done. So, if I say to you, this is the word of the Lord and I'm referencing Dabar, and let's say God speaks to you and something is communicated in terms of what God is going to do. In the mind of the speaker, God, what is communicated is already done as it's communicated. The speaking is the thing done, even though there is no physical evidence of it being done. So this word is highly pregnant in that um, God speaks, I'm quoting Romans 4, the Bible says, Abraham believed God who calls those things which are not as though they were. Right? So when God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, you are a father. Now the man does not have one son. But Abraham's reality is, because God said it, he debarred it, the thing is, even if the thing is not, it is by virtue of the fact that it was spoken, right? So every New Testament, every Old Testament person that received a debar word of God had faith to believe it. Why? Because they understood if somebody comes to you and says, I have, I have, this is the word of the Lord to you. The word word to us simply communicates ideas or communication. But to, to a Hebrew person living in the Old Testament, if, 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 if you, Quentin, were an Old Testament saint, and the prophet comes to you and says, hear the word of the Lord, hear the debar of the Lord, you in your mind know, as the thing is communicated, it's... The, the power of its fulfillment is pregnant in its utterance. So the thing is already done. Hmm? That is the Old Testament phrase, Dabar. Everyone say Dabar. I love this word. So if you are studying in the Old Testament, you're reading anywhere in the Old Testament, and you come across this phrase, Word of the Lord. In your mind, as a good student of the Scriptures, you know exactly what it's, it's referencing, right? That's why the men of faith believed in the face of such contrary odds, they believed. Even though in external physical evidence, 
contradicted what was spoken. Their faith was in what was spoken rather than what was experienced. And very soon, what was experienced was brought in line with what was spoken. Okay? Say Daba. I mean, say Amen or something. <laughs> I, I just, when I first learned the meaning of this word, I was so happy. I took all my prophecies. And I will begin to pray that thank you, God, for your Dabar word. Of, even though my, my life personally, physically, the evidence seems so contrary to what you promised. But I, will, I, will, I refuse to let my physical circumstances dictate my reality. Amen? My reality is your word. My reality is your promise. Amen? Come on, say it with me again. Dabar. So now, Brittany, you know what Dabar means. Never forget it. You young, many words will come to you as you grow in the Lord. When the word comes, you say, yes, I believe the Dabar word of God. Amen? The Dabar word of God. Now, that's Old Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek. Right? In the New Testament, we have two words translated Word. Two Greek words translated in English as word. In your notes, they are logos and rhema. Right? Logos and rhema. Logos means the following. I love the meaning of logos. Eh? Let me just say this. As I discuss these words, no one, no one word is better or superior than the other. Both are valid and relevant and extremely important to us as New, New Testament saints. The Logos of God is the intelligence of God. Repeat after me. The Logos of God is the intelligence of God. This Greek word, Logos, literally means intelligence. Now, if you think intelligence, you think mind, not so. You think thought processes. You think the churnings over in the mental faculty of thoughts, of ideas, of intentions, and of will. If ever you perceived or conceived of God as having a brain, as being an intelligent, rational being, think of the word as that faculty within God by which or that makes him an intelligent, rational being. And the only way we know that he is so is when he communicates it. Right? So the intelligence of God, the Logos, is the intelligence of God. It's not just the intelligence of God, but it's intelligence, and your notes say, word. Everyone say word. Word as the expression of that intelligence. Hmm? Um, Don't you know how clever some people are by listening to how they speak? Or how foolish they are sometimes. It doesn't always work the other way. Okay? People reveal the state of your mind or the condition of your mind by the content of your speech. Your words reveal your mental faculty. Okay? I'm listening to a series by William Hinn presently on honor. And I put this note on Facebook and on the BBMs on the group here. Um, He said this, a statement yesterday I heard it that really, really, really spoke to my own heart. He said the... The, the position of your mind will indicate to me the condition of your spirit. 
If I had a machine where I can put some glass on Jules's mind and see what is the content of a thought process, that will reveal to me the condition of a spirit man. Okay? Now, God has thoughts. God has a will. God has intentions. God is clever. <laughs> Tell your neighbor we serve a genius God. The Bible even says that the foolishness of God, if there's such a thing, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Hmm? God's a genius. I mean, just look at the person next to you. <laughs> Isn't he? I mean, the fact that no fingerprint is alike, six billion people on the planet, God is the, a creative genius like no other. I want, you to imp- I want to impress this upon you. Because later on we will do a series on wisdom. God is a genius. He's a wise God. Right? He has intelligence that is far superior to the ways of men. That is why in Isaiah he says, My ways are above your ways. My thoughts, he says, are above your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts above yours. The, the, the requirement is, his thoughts must become our thoughts. The mind of Christ, Paul would argue, must become our mind. The intelligence of God. Now, where's the Bible? Okay, I have my iPad here. There's several Bibles on here. Um, the Bible. God, in his wisdom, put the sum total of his thought in 66 books and he gave it to us. And he's saying, you want to know my mind? Here's it. You want to know the content of my, of my thought process? Study my book. And you know what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs? It's the, what does it say? It's the prerogative of God to hide a matter in the word. But it's the duty of kings, you and I, to search it out. God has ingeniously hidden himself in the scriptures. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, search. Everyone say search. Search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. You will find me there. Search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me, Jesus said. Okay? So if you want to know the intelligence of God, you have to engage the the word of God. So just to read your note, this is from Vines. Vines is a Greek, very good Greek scholar. And uh, he, he wrote a, an expository dictionary of Old and New Testament words. And this is what he said. He said, intelligence, word, as the expression of that intelligence, a discourse, a saying, thing, and also the expression of the thought. So when God speaks to you, what is he doing? When God writes in his book, in 66 books of the Bible, what is he doing? Everyone say, express his thoughts. So he's expressing his thoughts. The other Greek word translated word is the word rhema. Everyone say rhema. Rhema, okay. Let's look at the logos briefly. And distinguish logos from rhema. Okay. Rhema, just before we go there, rhema is that which is spoken, a statement or a word. 
both Rhema and Logos express the idea or have the idea of the expression of words or of thoughts in words, both of them, and utterance, right? By implication, a matter or a topic, something spoken, right? Something spoken. But we need to delineate and distinguish between Rhema and Logos in this respect. Let, let, let me proceed to explain. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. Right? Now, as we proceed, the entirety of the scriptures, the whole Bible, all 66 books represent the thoughts of God to you. Right? That is the Logos. The intelligence of God represented to you is the Logos. 2 Timothy 2.14 Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which are useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Sometimes it's, it's, it's not worth arguing a point, even spiritually in dialogue, trying to convince somebody else of truth. At times, you've got to discern the moment. Know when to just um, leave the debate. Okay? But, in verse 15, is one of my favorite scriptures in the book of Second Timothy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman that does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word, and the word worthy is logos, accurately, accurately handling the word of truth. Now you should underline be diligent, or at least underline for you. The word be diligent, I should have told you this, all the scripture references in this note are taken from the New American Standard Bible, my preferred um, translation. The King James Version of 2 Timothy 2.15 says, study to show yourself approved. The New American says, be diligent. All right? And we could teach a whole sermon just on those two words, study and be diligent. That's not the focus here. The, what I want to focus on is that Paul is Timothy's spiritual father in the Lord. So Timothy is the spiritual son. Paul is the spiritual father. A father is talking to his son, writes him a letter. We call it Second Timothy. It's an epistle, a letter of instruction. And says to his son, my son, sometimes you're going to have to leave the debate. Because it's going to lead to further ruin for everybody. Rather you focus on your state. Don't try too much to convince others. You be diligent about your approach to the scriptures. You study. The word is spurdazo, study or be diligent in the Greek. It means stretch and hasten with urgency to apply yourself to a task. This is not casual, I will read my Bible when I feel like it kind of a thing. This is not I will open my Bible every now and then. This is systematic, thorough approach to the reading of the word of the Lord. Okay? Everyone say, spurdazo. Be diligent. 
hasten with urgency to study the Logos. Timothy, and listen carefully. Why must you be diligent to study? He says so that you can be approved as a diligent workman before your God. Right? So that you can accurately, I like the phrase, accurately handle the book. Accurately handle the, the intelligence of God. Right? It's amazing how many people cannot find their way around the scriptures. Right? Why do I suddenly sense a conviction coming to the meeting? <laughs> this forum is to encourage you. David said in Psalm 119, My eyes prevent the night watches, that I might meditate in thy law. He was saying sometimes I will even deprive myself of sleep so that I can engage your word. I heard Anderson Williams' testimony. He's one of the leaders with CWBN. Um, and he uh, said something that really spoke to my heart years back, I recall. He said when he first got saved and he came into knowing God, there was so much he didn't know. He said for years he would spend whole nights studying, devouring whole books, writing, pouring his mind over things. Simply, he said, God, I will never want to stand before people if I'm not a workman approved before you and them. Right? Everyone say handle. Ask your neighbor, what are you handling? Hmm? When last have you handled accurately the word of truth? When last did you open the book? Not just for yourself, but also for your hearers. And communicated not from cliches. The church is full of spiritual cliches. We've grown up with terms over the years. But if you ask the person, okay, dialogue that from the scriptures. And then we are found wanting. Amen? Become a Logos man. Become a Logos woman. Become a word man. Become a word woman. If there's something I want to impress upon you, love the, the scriptures with all of your heart. Because here you're going to find the nature of God. You're going to find the will of God. How important is this book to you? My son, Timothy, be diligent. He's not saying, my son, I suggest that you engage this every now and then. He's saying, spurdazo. Say it again, spurdazo. means to hasten with, with urgency. Apply yourself diligently to the task. Right? In other words, don't drag your feet. Right? And then in verse 16 he says, notice where, where this command is sandwiched. It's sandwiched between verse 14 which says, you know, do not wrangle about words and useless arguments that lead to the ruin of the hearers. And then he says, you focus on preparing yourself as a diligent workman. And in verse 16 he concludes by saying, what does he say? But avoid what? If there's something I want to extract from the fabric of this house, is empty chatter, is worldly talk. Some of our, the content of some of our conversations are exactly this. Empty chatter, worldly talk, void and vacuous going nowhere. Hmm? 
What has the content of your conversations been the last few days? What has the content of your conversations been the last few months? Has it been word or has it been empty talk, empty chatter? Paul, listen carefully. You must understand why I speak to you as a spiritual father. Paul is speaking to Timothy as a concerned father over a young man. He says, you young man, avoid, avoid. What does avoid mean? Stay away from. Physically remove yourself, if you have to, from the company. But don't entertain it. Avoid means stay away. Avoid worldly and empty gossip. Instead, what must you do? Be diligent about applying yourself to the word of the the word of the Lord. Right? I wrote in the note, the logos of the word of God must be accurately handled or rightly divided. Where the New American Standard Bible says, accurately handled, the King James says, rightly divide the word of truth. Now, these terms, um, ac- if I say to you, accurately handle your, your Bible, accurately handle the word of the Lord, Know your way around it. Rightly divide it. Be diligent about studying it so you can, as a skillful user, when God calls upon you and you have to speak from this book, you can do it like a skilled teacher, right? Like a skilled craftsman, like a skilled technician, knowing what you're about, right? Accurately handle in the Greek is the word orthotomio. It's in your notes. Ortho. Tomio, okay? And the meaning's on the next page. So rightly divide or accurately handle is this word. I like the meaning. It says to cut straight. Right? To cut straight. To dissect and to expound correctly. Right? Which of you have ever dissected a dead animal or human body? There's quite a few medical people in the midst tonight. I know Renee um, did a human body at one stage in a medical technology training. So he has the body, and you cut it up. You dissect it. Take it apart. He has the word of truth. Handle it. Cut it up. Take it apart so that you can expound it accurately. Right? So you can give an exposition, expound exposition, to cut straight. Right? I won't go through all the meanings. It basically means to cut a path or to cut straight. Um, John Stott gave this definition. We're going to take this down somewhere. John Stott, I remember reading his commentary on Second Timothy when I was in, gee, I was 21. Someone bought me this commentary in the book of Second Timothy as my 21st birthday gift. And I remember his take on this verse. He said, to cut straight is, and he used the imagery of a huge forest. It's like, you see, there's a forest. Impossible. No road to travel from one end to the other. Can't get through. And then some pioneer, brave person comes. What does he do? He cuts a straight path through the maze so people can go. This book is like a forest. Some people don't want to read it because it's too difficult. Guess what? I believe because you've come to the school of ministry. I prophesy over every single one of you. 
I want to give you a promise. I don't speak lightheartedly. I speak seriously. Every single one of you are going to be cutters of straight paths through the scriptures. I guarantee you that. You know why? You know why we need teachers in the word? Because teachers in the word are necessary to explain this book to others. Because the book might seem difficult. So we need skilled technicians and craftsmen to, to rightly divide the scriptures, right? To cut a straight path. But to do that, you're going to have to apply yourself diligently. I will encourage you, increase the time you spend with the word daily. Increase your hearing of the word of God. Cut a straight path through. Because there are some people dying to get into it, but just can't make their way through the maze. God is raising you and I up to be teachers of this word. Amen? So, tell your neighbor, welcome, cutter. (laughs) You're a cutter of a straight path. Amen? I love the International Standard Version's take on the same verse in your notes. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of. Handling the word of truth with precision. How's that? Lovely version, eh? He says, handle this word so precisely, you like on God's A-team. You're on God's special task team. You are, you're one of those highly trained soldiers. You know, you get the normal foot guys that go in and do damage, boom, bang, jangle. Right? Then you get the SWAT team, specially trained forces. They are special soldiers, highly trained in the art of war. Right? And they go in for special, unique assignments. I feel tonight that that's the kind of teacher that God is raising up. Right? So you are welcome to the elite forces. What a nice term, elite. Okay? With the elite force, the elite force of God. Now, don't read the aside. Let me explain what I wrote in the aside in your note. In there, all I stress is this. Whenever you study the Bible... Whenever you study the book, do not do it clinically, coldly. Do not do it as a mental exercise. Do not even do it as an academic exercise. While you will employ all your mental faculties in the process, studying the Bible is a spiritual exercise. Because, let me just say this to you, if God does not show you something in this book, you will never see it, no matter how intelligent you are. That is why the Bible says, how come is, that, is it so that intelligent, some of the people with the highest IQ in the world do not serve God? Spiritual things have to be understood with the spiritual mind. Okay? And the scripture says that the natural man, I'm quoting Corinthians, the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit, because they are spiritually discerned, neither can he know them. Okay? Neither can he know them. Why? Because they are foolishness unto him. He doesn't prioritize them. So when you study the scriptures, listen carefully, always seek to engage the author of the scriptures. The author of the scriptures is God himself. The Bible says God breathed the scriptures. To study the scriptures and not to know the person of God is futile. So, everybody say truth. 
Who loves truth? Do you believe that this Bible is a book of truth? Do you believe it contains principles of truth? What did Jesus say? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, um, the Bible says, thy word, I'm quoting John 17, 3. Jesus praying in the garden, he said, your word is truth. So the word is truth. But Jesus also said, I am truth. Whenever you study the scriptures, your study of the text must always lead you to more intimacy with the person of truth. Otherwise, this book and your study thereof, the Logos, will simply become another mental exercise that you are engaged in. Whenever you read and study the Bible, you always say to yourself, at the end of this process, may I know Him more. At the end of this, may I know Him more. And here's a frightening scripture. Jeremiah 2.8 The priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law, we say handle the word of truth, we said, those who handled the law did not know me. Do you know, UNISA and most universities have a theology department. You can read for a bachelor in theological science. Not so. You can study and get that degree. A lot of people, do you know, um, my maths teacher at school was a, a, a Muslim, professed Muslim. One of the best maths teachers I had, I, he took me standard 8, 9, and 10, grade 11, 10, 11, 12, as it were. Um, and he was a devout and professed Muslim, right? His religion was Islam. But did you know he enrolled at UNISA to study theology? And he, he passed cum laude with distinction. He beat the whole of the country. He topped the class. But he's as far away from God as anybody. Studied it academically, clinically, coldly. He knew all the books in the Bible, knew the content, knew the science behind, why the author wrote, etc. Academically, but did not know the author. Did not know the author. Yeah, God chides the priest. says, you priests, you're handling the law but you don't know me. Especially those of us who are preachers and teachers of the word of the Lord. We must never ever teach beyond. I would say never ever teach a topic, a theme, a principle from the Bible if in your own life you haven't assimilated that fully and that truth has led you personally into a more intimate relationship with God. Amen? It is vital. So you, you must handle. Everyone say handle. Ask your neighbor again what you're handling. Amen. Uh, become skillful in the right things. Amen. Now, Jesus said to the Pharisees, for example, in John 5, 39, it's in your notes, he says, you search the scriptures. You search the scriptures. Why? Because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these. What is these? The scriptures. These are. These testify about me. 
And if you know the context of John 5, Jesus is chiding the Pharisees of their inability to grasp what he's saying. And he's saying, but it's so strange that you, you don't accept my word. You, can't, you don't have a clue as to what I'm saying. Yet you guys, Pharisees, are experts in the law. You are the ones who daily search the scriptures. But little do you know, the same thing you're searching should be testifying of the person of the book. You, te- you search them without knowing me. Right? Without knowing me. I want to encourage you. Your study of the Bible must lead you into a more deeper, profounder relationship with God. Everyone say the Logos. As you approach the Logos and you study this book, it must, it must draw you into a greater understanding of who God, of who God is. Right? First John, I love what First John says. Verse 1. And what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes and what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning what? The word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you might have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with the Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy might be full. Verse 1, what was from the beginning? Notice, we've heard, we've seen with our eyes, we've touched with our hands, and concerning the word of life. The King James says, we've handled with our hands the word of life. John literally had interaction with the physical man, Jesus. Who was the word made? The word made flesh. He's arguing here, if you know the the spirit of this verse. He was saying, my handling of the word was made practical, was made physical, because I engaged him personally. I engaged him personally. Whenever you handle this book, you must always seek to engage him personally. Remember the the great story of, I can't recall the context or the occasion, but there was an occasion where speeches were given and the one guy got up and he read Psalm 23, is it? Great orator, a linguist, powerful resonance in his voice. This guy speaks and you get the, the shivers. And he gets up this great orator and he reads Psalm 23. Packful audience, powerful sound system. His voice echoes. At the end of that ceremony, the psalm was to be read again. And some insignificant old person comes up and he reads it. The same psalm, broken, um, can't pronounce some of the words. And if you compare the two speeches, he would definitely is the lesser. But at the end of his speech, everybody's weeping. Everybody's hands lifted to God. Right? And the, the first speaker asked the second one, what was the difference? Why was your speaking so impactful? And mine not yet, by all standards, I'm the better speaker. And the simple answer was, you know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. Right? Let me just say this. When you speak from the platform of knowing Christ, the author of the book, your speaking will be powerful. Grace will be released. Your teaching will be authoritative. 
not academic. I fear that in the apostolic season, we are becoming far too academic without commensurate personal spiritual engagement with the person of Christ. All truth must lead to the person of truth. Right? Truth is not simply a set of cold clinical principles that we learn. Truth is a person. Use your imagination if you have to. You're sitting on a Thursday evening. You've chosen to study, let's say, First John. And you're reading the Logos. Say, God, let your person, let who you are, jump out from these pages. Uh, I don't want to just study a book. I want to know you, the author of this book. The Logos is the intelligence of God. Right? Now, Rhema. Everyone say Rhema. Now, listen carefully. Let's just read this. The, the word, the Greek word rhema is always used specifically in the New Testament. The rhema of the word, as distinct from the logos, is exemplified in the injunction, the sword of the spirit, which is the rhema of God. Quoting Ephesians 6, 17. Now Ephesians 6, 17 says, speaks about the armor of God. And says you have a sword as part of the armory. It says, take unto you the whole armory. When it comes to the sword, he says, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word, the rhema, not logos now. The sword is used in this context for warfare. You take a specific word from the general word. You're taking one scripture from the vault of scriptures. You're taking a rhema from the logos. Ever heard when someone encourages somebody, sends an encouraging email or something, and the person responds, hey, that was a rhema word for me. What happened? From the vaults and the power of the logos, someone used an apt scripture to speak to you. Right? To you, the hearer, it came forth as so right, so timely, just what I needed. God spoke to you by the rhema from the Logos. Rhema always proceeds from the Logos. Right? Always. Let's go on to the next page for for the sake of time. Here's a nice analogy. If the Logos is represented by a well, think of a well. Don't think barn well, no, just a well. A well from which you draw water. So the, the Logos is the well. Rhema would be a bucket of water drawn from the well. You understand? So the large reservoir is the Logos. So one bucket or cup from the Logos would be Rhema, specific for your unique circumstances. It is a timely Holy Spirit inspired word from the Logos. A specific word that applies in a specific situation for a specific person or audience. The rhema word of God. Right? Do you know even in my speaking now, some of you are hearing rhema. Hmm? Some other analogies worth considering are, the logos could be an orange. The rhema could be, as you squeeze the orange, what happens? Juice flows, and what in the juice? Vitamin C. Right? So the logos is the orange. The rhema would be the nutrient the spiritual nourishment you needed that day, that hour, 
that time period of your life, God spoke to you and gave you a unique word. The Logos could be the entire piano. The rhema would be one note or key sounded from the range of keys. Hmm? The Logos could be the entire human body. The rhema, one part functioning specifically, in a specific capacity. Okay? Rhema is always dependent on Logos. Rhema emits from Logos. Without Logos, you cannot have Rhema. Now here's a couple of verses. First Peter 4.11 says, If anyone speaks, listen carefully, let him speak as the oracle of God. The Greek word for oracle there is logion. The root is Logos. So what Peter is saying, if anybody wants to speak, he must speak from the Logos, right? The New American Standard says, whoever speaks, he is to do it, sorry, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances or the oracles of, of God, okay? Now, listen carefully. If I speak to you from the Logos, when you hear it, you hear it as Rhema. I speak from the Logos. Do you know I can, I can talk on a, a topic, let's say a Sunday morning sermon, a topic, and do you know there could be a hundred people present in the meeting who all got a hundred different words from one theme, from a 30-minute sermon? I would say something... This person heard something unique to them. I speak from the Logos, but what is heard is, is Rhema. So what Peter is saying, whoever speaks must speak from the Logos. But Romans 10 verse 17 says this in your notes. How does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Rhema. I speak the Logos. You hear it as a Unique word applicable to me. How many of you are hearing Rhema tonight? Okay. Rhema, right? Applic a unique situation applicable to you. We're not going to get through this. <laughs> We're going to have to break and then come back. Right? We'll break in five minutes. Now, you can read some of this in your own, in your, in your own time. What I want to focus on is this. Listen carefully. The Logos in Scripture is always presented as the person of Christ. John 1 says the following. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the, and the Logos was God. Word, right? Or Logos. The intelligence of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is the Scripture talking about? Jesus Christ, not so. And in the beginning, the Word. The Word was a person. Truth is a person, I told you. The Word was a person. He was in the beginning, all things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has not come into being. In Him was life, and His life was the light of, was the light of men. Revelation uh, 19.13 says, He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and His name is called the Logos of God, the Word of God. What is the name of the Lamb? Say, Word of God. 
I want to impress this into your spirit so strongly. The name of the Lamb, the name of the pre-incarnate Christ is Word of God. How important is it? The name of the Lamb is the Logos of God. How dare you and I today neglect this? Name speaks of nature. He has compressed himself into these books, which we call the Bible. This library of 66 books. He's saying all of who I am is contained in this. This is who I am pre-existently. The Lamb is the Word of God. You can pray and say, Word of God, come to you. <laughs> okay. Call Him by His by His name. Amen. The Word of God is the name of the Lamb. The Word of the Lord is God Himself. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, he was in the beginning with God. Now, in the paragraph, God cannot be God apart from His Word. His Word is what makes Him God. Right? The Son came into an earth-based context to this world to reveal the brilliance and the nature of all that there is to God. Remember when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So a son comes into the world, he leaves the spirit realm, comes into an earth-based context, and he says, if you want to know him, then Thomas says, show us the way to the Father. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life, right? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know all that there is to the Father, study the Son. So the Son is the interface, if you would. The Son is the reflector of all that there is to, all that there is to God. Sonship is the only conduit or medium that can accurately and fully express all of God. It's very important for you to understand that. Sonship is the only conduit that can accurately and fully express all of God. All of God resides in a principle called Son. If you see the Son, you see the fullness of the Godhead. Right? You see the fullness of the Godhead. Now think about it. This pattern Son, uh, we, we often call, just for, for terminology's sake, for the young people in particular, um, in apostolic circles, we often refer to Jesus as the, the patterned son. Pattern meaning um, template, right? Um, if you have a pattern, for example, for making a garment, and you use the pattern as a template, and you cut out the material, etc., and you make the garment, you can use another, make a second garment using the same template or pattern, and the one will be just like the other. Jesus is the pattern son in that he is the template. When he said, I am the way, everyone say way. The way, the Greek word for way is hodos. Not hold down. Hodos, spelled like this. And hodos simply means method or methodology. 
I am the way. I am the method. I am the pattern. I am the blueprint. Right? If you want to know anything, study my pattern. Jesus is saying, study my methodology. I am the 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 patterned son. Right? If you follow me, if you look at me and study me, he's saying, you will get from me a pattern by which if you copy, you'll be just like me. Right? Everyone say pattern, son. Right? Now, listen carefully. John 1 says, um, write the reference down where you have the phrase, it's the third line in the paragraph, Jesus Christ came as the word made flesh. Third line in the paragraph. It's the reference is John 1.14. Right? The word became flesh. Say it after me. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. So, listen carefully. Jesus coming as a human being upon the planet demonstrates to us how all humans should function. He came as the pattern. He came as the hodos. He came as the methodology. And when he came, the scripture says in John, the word, what? Became flesh. I'm going to say this now and prove it later on in later sessions. All of you here are word made flesh. If you truly understand what I'm saying. The word becomes flesh. The word became incarnated in human flesh. Started to dwell amongst men on the planet called earth. Incarnating the word is the only way we can give expression to the nature of God. So if, if the Son, we said, is S-O-N, if this construct, if you would, for want of a better terminology, if this is the construct, if I draw lines out like this, to make visible or to beam off, to show people that every to show people everything about God or what he represents it only comes through a vessel called son Jesus said you've seen me you've seen him I've come to put him on display to you if that son is described in the scriptures as a word made flesh you and I were our flesh You and I who are humans have to be consumed. We have to be fixated. We have to seek to do what the Hodos son did. The pattern son did. He was a word made flesh. By that we mean simply, this book, ultimately, the Logos of God. Everyone say Logos. The intelligence of God, ultimately, this must translate to this. This must be this. Made flesh. Hmm? Only then can the Son beam off to the world everything that there is to God. Okay? So tell your neighbor, become the Word made flesh. Become 
the word made flesh. So, if, um, to use a simple example, let's say you're studying in the scriptures about forgiveness. I've developed my own study on the principle of forgiveness. You're studying about forgiveness. You've developed your own manual, right? 100 pages long. All the principles, you've studied the Logos, and you've developed this. Guess what? That study means very little if, at the end of the day, you can't come to your greatest enemy, look that person in the face and say, I forgive you wholeheartedly. If that word hasn't become flesh. In other words, if you haven't become the embodiment of what you've studied, you, you, your sonship is compromised in that you cannot say to other people, if you've seen my behavior in this context, let's say at school. How many of you are teachers here? No, it's back to school now. <laughs> okay. I know, what, I know what it is like to be back at school. And let me just say the staff relations, not just on, on, on teaching staff, any, wherever you are in your business, there's always issues relationally with people, not so? And if you can't model to others in your world how a son of God should behave and act in your context, you've compromised your sonship and your ability to represent God in that context. Hmm? I said to, uh, I think I gave you this testimony, we counseled uh, a, a person whose wife was unfaithful and he was struggling to forgive. And in part of our counsel to a very dear friend, I said this to him, I said, if you can forgive your wife, and she was wanting forgiveness and restoration, if you can forgive your wife, your, 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 your children, I won't mention how old, but some of you are trying to work at Wooz's now. <laughs> your children will never ever need one Bible study on forgiveness. Why? You have now become the principal of forgiveness in their world. You have demonstrated to them how a person should forgive, right? Hopefully, let me just say this. If you know how to give your tithes and your offerings and you do it in, before your kids, they will never need a Bible study on first fruits. They will never need a Bible to someone to convince them of the need to tithe. Why? The principle became flesh in their world. Amen? Tell your neighbor your word made flesh. You, could, you should say to everybody, if you're struggling how to love somebody, look at me. See how I love. Follow me as I follow Christ. Right? If you're struggling with forgiveness, look at me and see how I'm forgiving. If you're struggling with how to honor your spiritual father, you're struggling in that domain, look at me and simply copy me. Right? You become the word made, made, made flesh. I wrote in the note, we put the nature of God on display by our love for and obedience to the word of God. God cannot be defined or appraised apart from his word. God and his word are indissoluble. They are indissolubly one. You cannot extract one from the, from the other. They are one. Show me a son without word, not a son at all. Claim sonship and don't prioritize word. I wrote in a, a Facebook comment the other day, something I read from Derek Prince. He said this, 
You can never ever love God more than you love His Word. Right? He said this, the degree to which you love God will indicate the degree to which the degree to which you love God's Word will indicate the degree to which you love God. Nothing more, nothing less, just that much. Right? Ask your neighbor on either side of you, do you love God? Okay, you're asking. Okay, answer the question now. <laughs> okay. Yes or no? I, I guarantee the responses are mostly yes. So how do we measure that? Jesus said, if you love me, you must keep my commandments. The love is always referenced that the measuring yardstick is the word. Right? You'll never ever love God more than you love his word. Show me how much time you give to the word, and I'll tell you how much you love God. You can sing like we sang tonight, I love you, Lord, and I lift my heart, my hands, or my voice to worship you. You can say it, but to live it is another thing. Eh? Eh? I want to say it again. You'll never love God more than your prioritization of His Word. Nothing more and nothing, nothing less. Okay, enough of that. Now, go to Revelation 14. It's in your note. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father. Right? Having his name and the name of his Father on their, on their foreheads. Now we just read, the name of the Lamb is what? What's the name of the Lamb? The Word of God. And yet the Lamb is speaking. Thomas and a teaching on this verse. Now it says there are 144,000 standing with the Lamb. That 144,000 is not a literal number. It doesn't mean that there will only be 144,000 people saved. That number is a representation of an apostolic community. Right? It's a reference to an apostolic group of people that are passionate about the pursuit of God's purposes in their world. There's a whole teaching in that. I don't want to get into that now. I'm using this verse to demonstrate this principle. This group, which is depictive of you and I, we stand with the Lamb. Everyone say, with Him. I underline it. We stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Now, Zion is a place of perfection. Zion, in the Bible, is a place of total illumination, brightness, place of intense light, right? It speaks of revelation, transparency, purity, right? The book of Hebrews is also a representation of a perfected church. Right? We will study this. I'm just throwing things out now, but we will study Zion later in the year. Hebrews 12, for example, says, You have come to Mount Zion, comma, the church. So whenever you read Zion in the Bible, it's a symbolic representation of the, a perfected church full of light, full of revelation, full of transparency. And I'll read the Bible again. 
Romans, uh, Revelation 14, 1. I stood and behold the Lamb was standing on Mount. This place of a perfected, this place of perfection, this place of perfected strength, the place of light and illumination. Standing with Him was you and I, if you would. I'm paraphrasing. This apostolic community. And what do they have? Everyone say His name. So we have His name. The Lamb's name is what? Word and the name of His Father. You can't, as a son, represent the Father without the Word of God in you. Having the name of His Father where on there? Most people are fixated with 666, Mark of the Beast. Right? The, the name or the number on the forehead is not a literal thing as some people are looking forward to. The book of Revelation is highly allegorical. It's symbolic in its representation. Having a name on your forehead, your forehead is your thinking. Your forehead is your mentality. Your forehead is your under. Some people are waiting for an external 666 when they are already in the system based upon how they think. Hmm? So, listen carefully. I love to say with him. And we want to stand where he stands. You're standing alongside and you can only stand with him if you've assimilated his nature and character. You stand in the place of a perfected church called Zion. And the Bible says when you stand, the strong representative apostolic community, you stand with your mentality with, written on your forehead, word of God. In other words, what governs your thinking? Say it with me. Word of God. If somebody asks for your opinion, should he have done that in that circumstance? What is the basis of your thinking that prompts your response? Word, not culture, not history, not modern philosophy, right? not what we did in the past, but what does the Word of God prescribe we should do in this circumstance? Word of God. Everyone do this. <laughs> I know I'm being a bit dramatic tonight, but listen carefully. I want my thinking to be saturated by God's Word. I want my thoughts, if I'm to respond and give an opinion about a thing, my, 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 my contribution must flow from the Word of, from the word of God. His name Everyone say name. Now please, whenever you read this, I want to stress this upon you because this principle will come up recurrently throughout the year as we move along. Whenever, whenever you have this principle in the Bible, or this phrase, or word rather, name, it always, always, not sometimes, always, depicts two realities. The one is, Nature, and the one, the other is destiny. Always, always. In your notes, I've given you a few examples. The Greek for name is the word onomazo, 
which basically means name, that is a sign and appellation, right? To profess or call someone by name. And in your note I write, name implies far more than the mere term used to identify a person. Okay? Sorry, what's your name again? Tareen. So you all know who Tareen is. This is Tareen, sitting in front. What have I just done by using the name? What have I done in, in terms of our understanding? I've identified a person using a dis, description, right? So everyone knows that's Tareen. That's how we use name in our culture. In Hebrew culture, it was never used to describe or to identify a person and so distinguish one from another. That's Julene. That's today. We use it to separate people here. Not so? So we don't get confused. Imagine if we're all nameless. Hey! <laughs> it would be chaos here. Right? So names are used as descriptors to distinguish, separate one from the other. They're identifi- identification tags. But Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, if, if I call your name in a Hebrew culture, I'm meaning not to identify you. I am, I'm, I'm referencing something very, very specific. Two things. Who you are and where you're going. Right? Who you are. Another way of framing this is identity and destiny. Right? Nature or function. This, I like to categorize them like this. In your note, I explain it by using other terms. But your nature and your function are interdependent. Who you are and what you, where you're going are linked, right? So, for example, Jacob, what does Jacob mean? In your note there. Supplanter, deceiver, right? His name was changed to what? Israel. The, the name change means that you're no longer a supplanter and deceiver, I change your name from Jacob to Israel. What does Israel mean? One who has power with God. So when your character changed, your name changed, right? I will encourage you, those that are still to be married and will get kids, when you get your kids, name them consciously. I called him gift of God, my firstborn. Hmm? Where's Luke? There's my lastborn. I called him the luminous one. The light of God, Luke, Lucas. I called him at the back there, Liam, Jesse, great defender, preserver, protector. And Rachel, where is she? My daughter sleeping. (laughs) Rachel, the external beauty, right? Rachel and Leah, one who builds the house. So we name the kids not just to identify them, we consciously name them so to point to their nature and or their their destiny. Barnabas in the scripture, Barnabas, whose name means what? Son of encouragement. He was renamed what? Or rather, his previous name was Joseph, which means God adds. The apostles renamed him to speak to his, his, his destiny as an apostle who would console and encourage the church. Okay? So, if Name speaks of nature and destiny and function. And if on your name you're standing with, with the lamb on Mount Zion, 
and on your thinking and on your mentality. His name is engraved in your life. What is His name? Say it again. Word of God. Word speaks to His nature and will reveal all that there is to be done in terms of destiny. Therefore, you should be natured after the Word of God. The Word of God can renature you. Want to change your man? I'm convinced. Let him engage the scriptures. Right? The scriptures will, will change you. The scriptures will renature you. Okay? Now go over to page five. I won't read through Revelation, but you can read it in your own time. Revelation 19 from verses 7 to verse um, to verse 13. What I want to focus on is John 14. Let's read it together. John 14 verse 19. After a little while, the world will see me, will no longer see me. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. So Jesus is saying to, the, to his disciples, I'm going to go away. Um, before this, you know, Thomas asked, he said, I'm going, show us the way to the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? Here again he's stressing, you guys will see me no more. Who is he? He's the word made flesh in their midst. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and, my, and, and you in me, and I in you. Here's the verse. Listen carefully. He who has my commandments and keeps them. He who has my words and keeps them. Is the one who loves me. Anybody love God here? Anybody love God? Scripturally the Bible says only, listen carefully, if you have his word and you keep his word, then do you love God. You don't love God beyond this. Listen to me, I'm serious. If I come to each of you personally and I say, do you love God? And if you walk out here, jump in your, and you say yes, and you go home in your car to your normal life and you live out your life next week, and in your living, in your daily behavior and life, you're not loving God's word and keeping it and obeying it. You've just, you're living in self-deception. Deception is to be in the wrong and not know it. You think you're right, but you... So a person thinks they love God, but really they don't. How do I know they don't? They don't hold fast to His word and don't obey it. You love God no more and no less than by the degree to which you love His word and obey His commandments. Otherwise, you're living in a self-deluded world that you find that you, that you love God. Right? Now, I'll read it again. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved of my... I like this. Will be loved of my Father, and I will love him. And I will disclose. The word disclose means unveil, reveal, draw back the curtains, see all of who I am. Who would like the Lord to disclose more of himself to you personally? Who wants to know him more? Hmm? Who would like God to come to you and say, okay, I'm drawing back, I'm taking the veil off your eyes. This is me, this is God. Come know me. 
Right? Listen carefully. He discloses himself to you. Him and his father will come and love you and reveal themselves to you. You know, this, when I, I camped here for a few days in my thoughts, there's no big revelation here. There's nothing too deep, simple. If you love God, if you daily live obediently to his word, guess what's going to happen? Disclosure will come to you. You will be the ideal context and person in which he's going to reveal himself to you. God is not haphazard in how he reveals himself to who. He's very careful and calculated in these things. Amen? And I want to encourage the young people, many young people here tonight, live for God. Live for God. How old are you now? 16. I remember when I was 16. A long time ago. (laughs) And I made up my mind to serve God, even before that. And I tried to live a holy life all my life before the Lord. Guess what? You establish a foundation. You establish a context where God will consistently say, that's the boy. That's the life. That's the person to whom I will come and consistently peel off layer by layer of all I want, of who I am, and show myself to you. The secrets of the Lord, Psalm 31 says, are to those who fear Him. Amen? Everyone say disclosure. I I, I want to encourage you. Expect some of the greatest revelations of God that you've never ever known before. All of you expect it. Who's expecting this? I'm going to live a holy life. I'm going to live an obedient life. And in the course of the next few years, I'm expecting to know Him more. Not just the book, not just to accurately handle the Logos. But when I consult the Logos, and it comes to me as Rhema, and I obey it, and my obedience to his commandments shows him how much I love him, guess what he's going to do? He's going to say, I, Randolph, now you are ready for the next level. I will come. Listen carefully, I said this earlier to you. If God doesn't show you aspects about himself to you, you will never know it. It has to be an initiative of God himself to you. Okay? So who wants to know him more? Say it with me again, disclosure. Please, have faith enough to believe. Believe this, that the next few weeks is going to be revelations of God to you. Because you're consistently obedient, you love His commandments, and you do His will. And God's going to come and show Himself to to you. Check the next few verses out, verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas, said to him, Lord, then what has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not the world? How How can you reveal yourself to one group and not the other? Intelligent question, eh? That demands powerful answer. And Jesus, the word, the genius of God says. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, Judas. Judas just asked an important question. How you will disclose to one and shut yourself off from the other? Jesus responds, If anyone loves me, he keeps my word. And my father will love him. And we will come and we will make our abode with him. 
the dwelling of the Lord will be with you. I know that he lives in all of us. But let me just say this. Not everyone is obedient to the same degree. Not everyone is compliant to the same measure. And to those who are perfecting their love for God through obeying his word, guess what? There's going to come such a substantial presence of God in your life, it will be notable. I love what he said. You love my word, my father will love you. (laughs) If you obey my word, my father will love you. We both will come to you and we will set up our abode, our throne in your your context. Amen? We will set up our abode in your context. The word of God, your name, do some something practical if you have to write it and put a sticker on your forehead i don't know what you want to do just don't walk in town like that or go to school or your workplace like that all i'm saying is engrave it as part of your thinking let your nature be the word let the word of god nature you do it comply with it disclosures will come to you the father's going to love you like never before presence himself in your world like you like never before right his nature will be your nature right do you can you see tonight that you cannot describe the nature of god without reference to the word of god can't describe the nature of god without strongly referring to the word his name is word his name must be on your on your on your thinking now the word of god is the nature of god let's conclude this a very famous verse that is very misunderstood, I think. Right? I'm going to bring some correction to it here. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, I will bow towards your holy temple, and I will give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and for your truth. For you have magnified your word according to your name. Right? Now the King James Bible, which many people quote, says it's like this. You have magnified your word... Uh, above your name right you've magnified your word above your name the new american standard says not if you say the one is above the other you're saying one is more important than the other one is you, you get this idea of ranking right right i this is my personal opinion i believe the king james translation is inaccurate in this respect and i've studied i took the time to study the hebrew word right Let me just read the note. The word above is somewhat misleading in that it communicates the idea that word is ranked above name. No part of God is inferior of lesser worth, value, and weight than another part of God. Do you agree? No part of God is less than the other part of Him. In fact, the notion that there are parts of God and that these are seemingly disconnected is false. God is coherent within himself. He is a complete entity. So the New American Standard framing of this verse seems to be more accurate. The word of God is magnified how? According to his name, not above his name. His name depicts his nature, character. His word is not above this, but his word is in accordance with his name and and nature. 
So then his word is his name, nature and character. Repeat after me. You've exalted your word according to your nature. Name is nature. Name is nature and destiny. You've exalted your word according to the quintessential dynamics of that makes you God, your nature. So is your word in keeping with everything that you are. Okay? Now look at the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible says. You've exalted above all things your name and your word. I like that. You've exalted above all things your name and your word. The New International Revised Version says, You've honored your name and your word more than anything else. Repeat after me, more than anything. Word and name exalted. The NIV says, You've exalted above all things your name and your word. The New Living Translation says, For your promises are backed by all the honor of your name. I like that. Right? So many of us have grown up with only the King James interpretation of this verse. It seems like it's the only one that, that frames it that way. But all the other references communicate the idea that the word of God is in keeping with his, in keeping with his name or according to his name. The Hebrew word is al, according to, al. Right? It does suggest something having prominence over another in some other versions of Scripture. But the context in this passage suggests that we should interpret it as in keeping with or according to. You've exalted your word in keeping with your name. You've exalted your word in keeping or according to your name and character. Why? Because your name, your nature and character is your word. You've exalted your word on behalf of your name, concerning, besides, in addition to, or together with. It's always one in keeping with the other. Okay? The name of God, which is the nature of God, is the, the word of, of God. Amen?